hopefully the joy of fellowship with others of like precious faith. I'm sorry that I'm not a preacher like uh, these others. I'm not really qualified to be uh, in this place. I have to just depend even more perhaps on, on the word, but uh, I'm not able to preach. I'm simply a layman. But nevertheless, we are concerned with these issues that we face today on every hand, not just in our schools, but our whole culture is permeated with the evolutionary system. So I'm grateful for your interest and concern about this, and trust the Lord will bless as we study together. Uh, tonight, Lord willing, I'm going to be speaking a little more technically on the subject evolution versus entropy. Uh, but first things first, this morning we want to get into the Word of God and get the background for this problem in Second Peter chapter 3. Now, while you're turning there, may I say just a word about our books and the, the work that I'm representing now. As perhaps you know, I've always been in, in secular uh, universities for 25 or 30 years until the last six months or so. I was at Virginia Tech over at Blacksburg until last September. Uh, we have now what we call the Creation Science Research Center, where we're trying to do research and to write textbooks. We have a radio network and so forth of programs on Bible and science, trying to uh, do what we can to counter this evolutionary philosophy. The books that we distribute, there's one of each back on the table that you can look at. There are also some little uh, uh, listings of these and order blanks if you want to order any of them from us. The biology textbook is not one of mine. I want to make that clear. I didn't write this. It's written by a committee of the Creation Research Society, which is an organization of uh, scientists who are Christians and creationists. We have about 400 scientists in the society, and in order to be in the group, one must not only have a graduate degree, a master's degree, or doctors in some field of science, but also be committed to belief in creation, special creation, the literal account of creation in Genesis and the great flood, as well as the deity of Christ and the verbal inspiration of the Bible. So we have had a committee working now for a number of years on the preparation of this high school biology textbook. It is just, just out, brand new. We think it's an excellent book, and we would, of course, appreciate anything that you could do to help get it adopted here in the state of Tennessee. We're working in California and others around the country trying to not only get it into the Christian schools, but into the public schools if we can. We also have a book called Why Not Creation, which is a collection of articles from our quarterly journal. We have a, a quarterly magazine of research articles in what we call scientific creationism. And this is a collection of articles from the first five years of publication, the best articles uh, arranged into different subjects and so on. So you might be interested in this one in particular. The, other, the others, I think, are all mine. Now, this chapter in Second Peter is very familiar to every one of you, I know, and it's presumptuous for me to try to add anything to what you already know concerning it. But nevertheless, it's a most important chapter. This is the last word of the great apostle Peter, just before he was to be martyred, Second Peter 3. And this man whom the Lord had used so greatly in the early days of the church now looks forward to the last days. Now, I don't mean by that, of course, that he, Peter was not the foundation of the church, nor was he the founder of the church, but the Lord did use him mightily on many occasions, for example, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, 
he preached great sermons, messages to Jews, then in Acts 8 to the Samaritans, and in Acts 10 to the Gentiles. The Lord used him in a mighty way. And now here in the, at the very end of his life, he, by the Spirit, looked forward to the last days. Now, I don't know, of course, that we're in the last days. I, I think that we are. I think the signs indicate this. But I do know this, we're a whole lot closer to them than anybody's ever been before. <laughs> and therefore, these uh, instructions and admonitions of the Apostle apply more to us than to any previous generation. And he sees not only the situation, the world situation, and this basic philosophical problem, but also he gives us the answer for it. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. I just have to pause there for a moment. He says, stir up your minds. These are days when people like to have their emotions stirred up. And if you want to get a crowd, even in a religious service, while you provide entertainment, if people want to laugh or to weep or to, to sing or to, to be emotionally, and this, of course, is all right in its way, but... In the last days, he says, it's time to stir up your mind. You better start thinking. But he's not talking, of course, about filling our minds with all of the secular learning of the day. And this may be all right, too, in its way. I have a couple thousand books of my own in my little library, and I've read a few of them. And, of course, I've even written a few. And books are okay, but all books are only of real value as they relate to the book. And that's what he's talking about. He says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. That's the Old Testament scriptures. And then the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, and that's the New Testament scriptures. Knowing this, first of all, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. The last days, he says, there are going to be scoffers, and this is going to be in the context of Christendom. These are people who know about the promise of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. It's not the pagans who don't even know, but these are, this is within the context of professing Christianity. And he says these people are going to be denying the promise. In other words, men are going to have the attitude in the world of Christendom, the intellectual world, the academic world, the religious world, they're going to have the attitude, well, we'd, we're not really concerned about these plan, the, the plan of God in creation, his purpose in history, the promised consummation of all things. Uh, they're walking after their own lust, not, not necessarily physical appetites, but just their own interests, their own pursuits, their own ways. They, have, they know what they want to do, and they're going to use their time the way they want to, and they're going to do what they want to do. They're walking after their own lusts. And so they don't want to face the, the, the issue of having to meet God someday. If at all possible, if it's possible by any means of rationalization to avoid confronting God, or even facing the fact that someday they might have to confront God, they're going to do it. So they deny the promise of his coming. They say the fathers have been preaching this for years. They've all gone, and he hasn't come. Things still continue. As a matter of fact, Peter himself had said in Acts 3, uh, 21, I think, he says, God, by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began, has been promising the times of restoration of all things. And, of course, you go back to the beginning then, and you read how when 
The Lord created all things. Everything was very good. God made it just like he wanted it to be. There was no, nothing out of balance, no disorder, no lack of harmony. Everything was perfect in the judgment of an omniscient God. It was very good. But it isn't very good now. Something went wrong. And, of course, the thing that went wrong is sin. And God cursed the ground for man's sake. But at the very time he pronounced the curse, he also made the promise that someday there's going to come one, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And God is not going to fail in his creation. And he's going to restore all things. You see, the new heaven and the new earth is going to be at least what the first one was. It's not going to be just a vague, mystical, ethereal sort of existence. It's going to be an earth, this earth, physical, just as physical as this. Everything that was in the first one is going to be restored, and then much more than that. But all things are going to be restored. Jesus Christ said that himself in Revelation 21, 5. Behold, I'm going to make all things new. Be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain or tears. But everything's going to be made new again. So I'm going to get my hair back and... <laughs> Well, the Lord, by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began, has been promising the times of restoration of all things, but the ages have gone on, and he, the promise hasn't been fulfilled. And so now we've come to a day when men just ridicule the idea that there will be a time in, in the future when God, the, the personal God who created all things, is going to come back and judge and restore all things. And you don't have to be familiar with the scientific literature to know this. You see it in the newspapers, in the popular magazines, but if you are familiar with the scientific literature, you know that it's, it's saturated with there. You, you never find a mention of God in a scientific journal, and if you do, it's kind of in, well, with a small g, and in a sort of a patronizing tone. And the idea of creation is ridicule. The idea of coming judgment and consummation is hardly ever conceived of. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And you note there the intellectual basis for this position. How can men who are creatures presume to doubt the word of the creator? This is ridiculous. And yet they do. And they justify it by saying, well, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. In other words, the doctrine of continuity or of uniformity. And this is the attitude of the modern scientific, academic establishment, that we can explain everything that ever was or ever will be in terms of what continues right now. We can study in our laboratories the processes of biology and chemistry and geology. And in sociology, we can see the way people behave and the way things operate. And on the basis of our study of these processes, we can determine how they all came to be in the past, how everything has gradually developed by these same processes from primeval chaos up to now. And of course, it's going to still go on like that. There will be no end any more than there was a beginning. All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Therefore, where is the promise of his coming? There was no real beginning. Not just, you see, it would be a little different if they would acknowledge that there was a creation that was finished and, and perfect, and then now they, they might say, well, things continue since the end of the creation. But they're not satisfied with that. They've got to explain even the origin of all things in terms of what is right now. And so by processes of variation and mutation and sedimentation and all the rest, we can explain the origin and development of the solar system, of the universe, of life, 
of animals, of man, of everything, in terms of what is right now. This is the modern worldview, which is not simply in biology, but is in every field, without exception. It's in the social sciences even more than in the natural sciences. And it's in the realm of the fine arts and the humanities and, re and religion. Uh, it's not stretching it at all to say that in our secular schools, from kindergarten through graduate school, every curriculum and every course is saturated with this evolutionary uniformitarian philosophy. It's not just a peripheral issue that doesn't really, that doesn't really matter much what we, what we think about it. Leave it to the biologists, somebody said, let them worry about it. But it's far more than a biological theory. It's a worldview. And as a result of this, people say, well, everything has always been the same from the beginning of creation. And that means evolution. If everything has been the same from even beginning of creation, then we have to think in terms of evolution. And so it's not going to change in the future. Where's the promise of its coming? And beginning with the denial of origins, that is, of the biblical account of origins, of creation, uh, then it's only a matter of time before we deny all the rest of Scripture, because when the foundation goes, then the rest of it will, and the, the first chapter of Genesis is the foundation of everything else. And so that's exactly what's happened. But now the Apostle Peter not only tells us that it would be this way, and of course, here it's a marvelously fulfilled prophecy. This is even further proof that the Word of God is true, because he predicted this 2,000 years ago, and we find it fulfilled in a tremendous way now. But he not only tells us the fact, but he also gives us the answer. And I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, since the, since the educational world accepts evolution, therefore what you must do is to rethink your exegesis and to find some means of accommodating the geological age system and the evolutionary system in your biblical approach to the study of creation. Uh, You've got to find some way of, of making the word day mean age, or you've got to find some way of inserting the geological ages in between a couple of verses of Genesis or something like that. He says, don't do anything like that. You, you don't compromise with this system. You simply recognize it's wrong and reject it and refute it. He says, for this they willingly are ignorant of. Now, these are strong words. <laughs> This they willingly ignore, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. This they willingly are ignorant of. Now, sometimes when I speak like this, people get, uh, get mad at me. But, uh, but I didn't say this, you see. The Apostle Peter, by the Holy Spirit, says this. And these are strong words, and we wonder how the apostles can be so dogmatic about an issue like this. They are willingly ignorant. It's willful. They ought to know better. There's just no excuse for it. And how can he say that? Well, I, I suggest just at least two reasons. And, and note that he says there are two great facts of history that ought to be recognized. The, the creation, by the word of God, the heavens and the earth were of old. And the great flood, the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished. These two great facts of history, he says, are so obvious, they so, the, the evidence for them is so tremendous that it's just before you in plain view, and people who ignore it are willful. And he says that this gives you the answer to the evolutionary uniformitarian philosophy. Now, how can you use that strong language? Well, I, I say I think there are two reasons. In the first place, 
The fact of a special creation and of a worldwide world-destroying flood is taught in the Bible, and the Bible is the Word of God, and that ought to be reason enough. Now, people say, well, we don't believe the Bible. Well, maybe you don't, but uh, you ought to. It is the Word of God, whether you accept it or not. As, the, as Paul says in Romans 3, he says, What if some don't believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God of no effect? God forbid. Let every man be, uh, let God be true and every man a liar. It has to come to that. And the Bible is quite plain on this. For example, in the account of creation in Genesis, it describes how everything was created in six days. And then it says this, at the end of that six-day period of creation, God saw everything he had made. It was all very good. The evening and the morning were the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which he created and made. And you note how over and over again it stresses the fact that everything that God did in creating and in making everything was finished in the six days. And this tells us, as plainly as God could, could say anything, that whatever he is doing now, he wasn't doing then. His work of creation was finished. And consequently, science, which can only study the world as it is now and the processes that take place now, cannot possibly learn anything about creation. We can study as carefully and intensively as we, as we want, and we can devote our lives, and many people do, to the understanding of chemical processes or biological or geological or physical and so forth in the various disciplines of science. And what they do when they study these processes is to learn how God is now upholding all things, the processes of providence, of maintenance of his universe, but they're not learning anything about how he created it because those processes, it says, were finished. He stopped, he rested from all his work of creating and of making everything. Now, if science would just recognize that the end of the creation is the beginning point of the study of scientific processes and not the beginning of the creation, it would make all the difference in the world. But the, the scientist just wants to find some means of accounting for the origin and development of all things apart from God. And so he has to pretend that these present processes of sedimentation and radioactive decay and of mutation and all the rest are processes by which things have developed into their present form, and that isn't true. God finished his work of creating and making everything, and the Word of God is quite plain on this, and above all, Christians ought to recognize this and not try to accommodate the evolutionary system in Genesis. It won't work. Now, another reason, of course, why the apostle can be so dogmatic about this, although in his day perhaps he didn't appreciate this in the flesh as he, as he might now with the background of, of science that we have in the 20th century. But did you know that modern science has confirmed this as strongly as it can confirm anything? That is, that nothing is now being created. The basic law of science, the first law, the most universal and best proved law of science is the law of conservation. Conservation of energy, and energy is everything in the physical world. Uh, if you're not familiar with the term, let me uh, define uh, energy. It comes from, a co of course, a, a good Greek word. It's used often in the New Testament. For example, where it says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is quick and powerful. The word powerful is the word from which we transliterate energy. 
The Word of God is energizing. That is, it, it gets things done. It provides energy to do the work. And that's what energy is. We, we define energy as the capacity to do work. We can't see it directly or measure it directly because it's sort of intangible, but we measure it and we observe it and we utilize it in terms of what it does, the work that it does. And so it, we define it that way, energy, the capacity to do work, and we say work and energy are equivalent. And we now know in our present technological age that there are many different kinds of energy. There's electricity and magnetism and heat and sound and light and so on, and we now, in the atomic age, know that even matter is a form of energy, so that everything in the physical world is energy. And each type can be converted into other types, and everything that happens in the physical world is simply an energy conversion process, one type of energy being converted into another, and in the process work is done. But the remarkable thing is, and this has been proved beyond any doubt, as well as we can prove anything scientifically, that in all these processes, and this means everything that happens, every process operates within this framework, no energy is created or destroyed, but it's conserved. Well, that's exactly what the Lord had said. He finished his work, which he had made. He is now upholding all things by the word of his power. So the process of of conservation of energy, which includes matter, is now the basic principle of science, just as it was the basic pronouncement of God at the end of the creation period. So both the testimony of the Word of God and of the real facts of science converge on the necessary truth of the statement that there was a special creation at the beginning and that things which go on now are not creative processes. So that when the latter-day scoffers say all things continue as they were, they're just simply wrong, and they ought to know better. There's no excuse for them taking such a position as that at all. Now, also, he says there's another great fact of history, and that is the Great Flood. Why, what's so important about that? The world that then was being overflowed with water perished. The word for world there in the Greek is cosmos, and the word for overflowed is the word from which we transliterate our English cataclysm, so you could sort of read it this way if you want to. The cosmos that then was being cataclysmed with water perished. It wasn't just a local flood, you see. Uh, many of our modern evangelical scholars who say they believe the Bible, yet they, they talk in terms of a local flood there in Genesis because they don't want to, to be in, uh, in disagreement with geology. And, of course, our modern historical geologists completely reject the idea of a worldwide flood in the days of Noah, or of a worldwide flood any time, for that matter. Geology says there was no such thing. And so our modern scholars, by all means, we want to stay academically acceptable and respectable, and so we've got to just reinterpret Genesis in some way to make it fit. And so, after all, maybe the flood was just as, as extensive as man was. You see, man had only fanned out a little ways around there from, the, from Babylon, and so all it really took was an overflow of the river Euphrates and all of man's civilization would be destroyed. It was simply a, a local flood, universal as far as man had traveled. That was all. Well, it doesn't say that the, that the world of man was destroyed. It says the heavens and the earth, which were of old, that world being overflowed with water perished. Because the cosmos there is defined by the previous verse, which says the heavens and the earth. And furthermore, the word overflowed, 
cataclysms. If you check this in, uh, in the New Testament, when this word is used, either in its verb form or noun form, it always refers only to the flood of Noah, not to any other kind of a flood. There's a different word for a local flood. For example, when the Lord said the man built his house on the sand and the rains ascended and the floods came, it was a different word altogether. It was a local flood. But here, whenever this word is used, it refers only to the flood of Noah. It's used, for example, over in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, which says, God spared not the old world, and that's the old cosmos, but he saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the cataclysm upon the cosmos of the ungodly. And when the Lord Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that the cataclysm came and destroyed them all. So whenever that word is used, it refers to one flood only, and there was no other flood like that. If this were only a local flood, of course, it would be like any other. So this is a unique flood. It was the cataclysm. Now, here again, Peter says that this is so obvious that people are willfully ignorant when they don't see it. And again, I think the same two reasons. Biblical, first of all, and, and uh, secondarily, scientific. As far as the Bible is concerned, how could the... How could the scriptures be any more plain than they are concerning the worldwide nature of the flood? You read Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, and you don't find a local flood described there. For example, it says that the waters cover the mountains. If it were just a local flood, then, uh, well, at least it would have to cover the mountains in the near, near uh, the Euphrates River over there. And the ark land, landed on Mount Ararat. And Mount Ararat now, and of course, if this were only a local flood, then the mountains then would be the same as they are now. If we're trying to put the geological aid system into this, though there wouldn't have been any great difference in the topography before and after this local flood, so the mountains then are the same as now. And that means Mount Ararat is the same now as it was then, and Mount Ararat now is 17,000 feet high. And it says the waters covered the mountains to a depth of at least 15 cubits, for a whole year, and you don't have a 17,000-foot-high local flood for a whole year. That just... <laughs> and then, of course, uh, much more than that, the Bible talks about uh, the ark. Noah had to build this ark and, uh, to, in order to preserve life, take two of every kind of animal in the dry land. Some people ridicule that. They say you couldn't possibly get two of every species of animal in the ark. It wouldn't millions of millions of different kinds of animals, that couldn't happen. Well, nobody's ever really worked this out if they think that, and uh, I know some of you have been re you've seen my book, and we do deal with this thing a little in the Genesis Flood, so I won't go through all the, all the calculations and everything, but if you haven't, you can do this, and it turns out that the ark as described in Genesis, in comparison with the number of known species of dry land animals, that is, birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, you probably wouldn't even have to include the amphibians, but assuming that they went on the ark, you certainly don't have to put the fishes in the ark, and the Bible doesn't say Noah did, everything in the dry land, uh, that two of every known kind of animal, past or present, could have been accommodated in about one-third the size of the ark, probably one of the three decks. And so uh, there's plenty of room, you see, for food and, and uh, for Noah and his family to shuffleboard and everything they want to do to <laughs> <laughs> 
So the Bible is quite plain on this, and once again, if the Bible says so, this is the Word of God, whether men accept it or not, and certainly those of us who profess to believe the book ought to accept it and not try to explain it, but just to believe it. Now, the other reason, of course, would be scientific, and I know that the geologists deny the flood, but it isn't because the evidence isn't there. If you stop and, uh, and just think a moment, uh, what is the... The, uh, the structure of historical geology, this geological age system that we've been uh, presented in our modern world and which is just sort of a part of our modern cultural consciousness. We just know, you know, that the earth is five billion years old and that life on the earth is about three billion years old and that the various geological ages with the increasingly complex forms of life began about a billion years ago, that the great reptiles, the dinosaurs and all lived about 200 million years ago, and that finally man appeared on the earth about a million years ago. Everybody just knows this, but uh, how do we know that? That's a, nobody ever wants to ask how we know that. We just accept it, and it's just presented as, as fact. But when we examine the actual evidence upon which that whole system is based, uh, then the closer you get to the evidence, the more it seems to vanish into the distance. And the, the whole structure really uh, collapses when it's examined on the basis of the actual observed facts in the geological uh, sediments in the rocks of the earth as they really exist. The whole geologic age system is built on the fossil record, fossils, the bones, and the other remains of animals that are in these sedimentary rocks. And this is really the only evidence for evolution, this so-called fossil record. All the other evidences are strictly circumstantial and subjective and can be much better explained in terms of creation by a common designer with provision for slight variation within the kinds. But the fossil record, of course, does pre pretend to give us the documented historical development of life on the earth over the geological ages. So uh, this is the main evidence for evolution, but when you look at it a little more closely, this fossil record itself is based on the assumption of evolution because nobody was there when these rocks were laid down with their fossils. And the way that we, we presume to define them and to divide them and to date them is by means of the fossils which they contain. This is how, how rocks are dated, by the fossils that they contain. Those containing simple marine fossils like the trilobite are called Cambrian and are dated back about uh, 500 million years ago. Those that contain uh, dinosaurs are called uh, Jurassic or Cretaceous or something, dated about 100 to 200 million years ago and so on, so that the rocks are dated by the fossils. Now, I'm gonna, we're going to discuss this somewhat in more detail uh, tomorrow as we we'll also deal with some of the radioactive uh, methods of making uh, geologic dating uh, calculations. But just in, in, in passing by it quickly this morning, uh, it basically is true that the rocks are dated by the fossils. The fossils are dated by the rocks. It's a vast circle of reasoning. The, it's the main evidence for evolution, but it's also based on the assumption of evolution. And actually, when you, when you look at these fossils and you ask this question, how did they get there, then, uh, then, you, then you open up a real discussion because, you see, fossils uh, were once animals or plants or men who lived and then somehow were, were buried in these sediments, which initially were, were loose sediments moved around by water. That's what a sedimentary rock is. And then they were deposited, and the, the animals, the bones, or whatever it was, were trapped in these sediments. 
And then before they could get away, they died. And also before they could decay and go back to the dust, they were hardened and turned into rock. And now we find them. But uh, how, how did they get there? I think it's obvious. It ought to be obvious, at least any, with, uh, for animal, animals of any big size, like, uh, like dinosaurs or elephants or even fish or even trilobites. In order for these to really be there as fossils, they would have to have been buried quickly and also turned into rock quickly or they wouldn't be there. And yet the picture that evolutionists give us is of slow, uniform, normal sedimentation activity over vast millions of years. Well, if they were buried that way, they wouldn't be there at all. They would have all long since decayed and gone back to the dust. You think about the millions of buffalo that roamed the Midwest just a hundred years ago. They're all gone. You don't find their bones, their fossils anywhere, except maybe occasionally one of them might, got, might have gotten trapped in a flood or something and buried, but normally, unless there's some quick burial, you won't, you won't get a fossil at all. But here the whole system is based on the fossils, and that means that the whole system is based on the implicit assumption of catastrophism, while at the same time it's being presented to us under the dogma of uniformitarianism. Peter says they're willfully ignorant. <laughs> now, this would be especially true when you find these vast graveyards of bones, like in California out there, there's a place where there are literally millions of fossil fish buried in the shales, and the great dinosaur beds in the Rockies and other places, and the, and the millions of elephants that are buried up in the Siberia and Alaska, and the beds of hippopotami in Sicily and, and all this. You find these great fossil graveyards all over the world, and the whole system is based on them, and it's presented to us as evidence of evolution when what it really speaks of is not gradual development of life, but rather sudden extinction of life, is what it really tells us. And although there are a lot of problems, and we don't know all the answers to all the details by a long sight, that's the reason why we have a creation research society. We're trying to work out some of these problems, and we do need desperately to do a lot of this research. Uh, we, uh, there are a lot of things that are hard to explain, and uh, we don't really know the answers, but I think we see the general framework, at least, and the overall structure of special creation and the Great Flood provides the uh, an adequate framework within which to explain all of these data of fossils and, and uh, varieties and everything else which we study si in science and which the evolutionist says prove evolution. Really, the framework is there for us to understand all of these phenomena much better in terms of the framework of, of history given to us in the Word of God. And so Peter says, if you'll just really take into account fully and apply this framework of creation and the flood, uh, you'll eventually have a system which will completely refute this dogma of continuity and uniformity. All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now, just very quickly, I want to go through the rest of the chapter so you get the whole, the, the whole picture here that Peter gives us. You note that he divides the whole history of the universe up into three divisions. He says, the heavens and the earth which were of old. First of all, that was the first cosmos. But he says that was destroyed by water at the time of the flood. Now he says in verse 7, the heavens and the earth which are now. That's the present cosmos. And this is the only one that science can study. And, of course, it's perfectly proper to do that. God told us to subdue the earth and have dominion, and this is the 
the justification for science and technology, and we do rely upon the uniformity of nature now, or we couldn't have any technology or science. We, everything would be chaotic, and everything is essentially uniform now, except when God is pleased to intervene in miraculous ways on occasions. But normally everything is uniform now. The heavens and the earth which are now, he says, by the same word are being kept in store. This is the principle of conservation being reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, he says. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And there, now people say, well, there he means it, it took uh, a thousand years to preach the six days of creation, or, and that uh, you don't have to take the days literally. That isn't what he says at all. He says God can do in one day what man would calculate would take a thousand years, and he doesn't have to have millions of years to do his work. So he says, remember this, one day is with the Lord, not, not one day is a thousand years, but one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and God can do right quickly what man would calculate on the basis of his assumption of uniformity would take a long time. Now he says the Lord hasn't forgotten his promise. The Lord isn't slack concerning his promise. Men say, where is the promise of his coming? But the Lord hasn't forgotten, but he's long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works therein shall be burned up. So this present cosmos is being reserved unto fire, and all these things shall be dissolved. So what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements melt with fervent heat. And of course, obviously, the only way in which we can hasten the coming of the day of God, and this is speaking, you might say, uh, what's the word, anthropomorphically or something, they, is to do all we can to bring men to repentance because that's the reason he hasn't come. But then he says there's going to be a third cosmos when this one is destroyed by fire, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness, and that one will last forever. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things. Now, we do look for his promise. We don't deny his promise, I trust, but we're looking for it. And like John says, now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So he says here, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, is written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which there are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable, and that would be unlearned and unstable in the Scriptures, because that's what he started with, you remember, twist, as they do also the other Scriptures, to their own destruction, now, in other words, in the whole context here, he's saying that there's going to be a strong temptation in the pressure of the prevalent worldview all around you all the time to try to rethink and to reinterpret and to re-exegete the Scriptures, to twist the Scriptures. And especially is that true for those who are not solidly grounded in the Scripture. They're unstable. They're tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine and so on. And he says when you do that, it's to your own destruction. Don't twist the Scriptures above everything else. Now, he's not talking about losing your salvation, but he's talking about losing your testimony and losing your institutions. And you know, this is a tragic truth that for the past hundred years especially, 150 years really, since uh, 
not just Darwin, because he didn't originate the theory of evolution by any means. It was strong for a hundred years at least before him. That for, for the past two centuries, especially, and you can trace this back into history, because there's always been an evolutionary theory opposing the truth of creation. You find special creation only in the Bible. Every other religion and philosophy among men is evolutionary. And so there's always this pressure to compromise and to conform to the current scientific thought, the current worldview. And this is always centered in the question of origins because this is the basis and the foundation of everything else. And so people try to rethink the scriptures. And once the, question, once the doctrine of special creation goes, then it's only a matter of time before inspiration and all the rest. And this has happened over and over and over again to churches, to denominations, to schools, to publications, to missions, to Christian organizations of every kind, just by the hundreds, the past century especially. And it's happening today by an institution by the hundreds because people are doing the same thing today. And he says, You therefore, beloved, seeing that you know these things before, beware lest ye also... It could happen to us too, you see, unless we are really on guard. Being led away with the error of the wicked, that is, the unsettled ones, fall from your own steadfastness. But instead of that, he says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. <laughs>